You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello, music lovers, and welcome back to Modern Musicology. Alan is once again off out on shenanigans this episode, so I've been tasked once again with kicking us off and guiding the conversation. So with me this evening, I'm I'm Anthony, by the way, and with me this evening, I have my rather fabulous co-hosts, Miss Stephanie Seymour. Hello, everybody, and we're very happy that you're the host tonight, Anthony. Thank you. And the... One and only man known only as Rob. Greetings and felicitations. <laughs> and this episode, our topic of conversation is around greatest comebacks. So this could have the potential to be a fairly broad and nebulous topic. So we have decided to scope this to make it relevant to bands who have made a conscious effort in a comeback. Think reunions, think new album out of nowhere after a hiatus, or even changing a singer in order to recapture past glories. So we're going to keep this fairly open and free-flowing, but I will start with a question for Rob and Steph. To each of you, what has been, in your opinion, the greatest comeback? In my opinion, I think the Elvis comeback was the greatest comeback. Um it literally was labeled comeback to the comeback special. Uh, but I, I really do feel like he just did it just such an amazing, amazing job. Um, so Steph, can you tell us a little bit about the background of that? What, what happened? Did he take some time out and then he hadn't played live? I think it was, what have Rob eight years, maybe something like that. Um, and was sort of, I guess on the downswing really because of, I know we're going to get into this more later, but the Beatles and, you know, this, it was that a whole different genre of music that was becoming popular. I mean, if you, if you see these old, the old footage of, you know, uh, long live the Beatles, Elvis is dead. You know, I mean, these kids were yeah. just right. And a lot of the, the Elvis was associated with parents Yeah, and people were rebelling against parents. So yeah, exactly. He's kind of on the outs. Yeah. And then they've, so they put together, I mean, like we said, we'll go into greater detail, I think, but in 68, they put together the comeback special. Um, and really it was, uh, it launched some of his biggest hits ever, I think, like Suspicious Minds and Burning Love. And of course, If I Can Dream, which is my favorite Elvis song. Um, so anyway, that's yeah. in my opinion, probably the greatest, but there's some, uh, there's some right close, like uh, Tina Turner, Aerosmith. I think. Yeah. And we'll talk about some of those in a second. Rob, do you have a, a personal greatest comeback? So I think mine, mainly because I was also going to talk about Elvis and Tina Turner, but um, I also have to say Johnny Cash. Because mm -hmm. um, yes. in 1994, when American Recordings came out, he um, had been in and out of different th rehab three times. He hadn't really had a record out since the since the eighties and none of, I mean, nobody ever says Johnny cash in the eighties and thinks of anything, you know, he's playing one-off shows at like, you know, 
Six Flags and, um, you know, just small little shows here and there when he can get them. But his addiction has made him sort of a cast off with booking people because he cancels and he's had all kinds of issues. On top of the addiction, he has had health problems as well. And his life is just kind of not really organized. He doesn't really have a coherent record deal. He's not really touring. He doesn't really have what we would call a career path. Rick Rubin comes up and sees him after a show. And Johnny Cash is like, there's this guy in a Red Hot Chili Pepper shirt with a beard who wants to talk to him about making a record. And um, so Rubin gets him in the studio and basically says, okay, let's just focus on the songs. And he got this record that is like basically encapsulates all of like the pain and the frustration and the agony that the elderly, I hate to say elderly, but the older Johnny Cash is going through. And, you know, it's as far away from Folsom, Folsom prison, uh, which is also a comeback for him as well. The Folsom prison album, but it's as far away from his hits as, as possible. Right. And all of a sudden, you know, Johnny Cash is on the cover of Rolling Stone. He's got he's on um, MTV. He's on MTV. He's got a Nine Inch Nails cover, and suddenly Johnny Cash's audience has gone away from like Nashville grandparents to like college kids, right? And I saw him at CMJ that year, and uh, with June Carter, I might add, and it still is the best concert I've ever seen. And um, just seeing the sheer amount of I mean, you could see when he's performing that this is a man who's like, oh, my God, I've got it back. Right. And I think that kind of is one of the things, too, that when I think of when we talk about comebacks is much like Elvis, you know, there is a personal satisfaction you see in the performances and the music that the artist is making at that time. So I think I think he's in there for me. And he won a Grammy for that. Yeah. And to your point, Rob, when Hurt came out, that must have been what kind of 2004 ish. Yeah. I mean, I was 16 when yeah. that came out, and I was listening to Johnny Cash in England wow. because of that record. Amazing. At 16 years old, you know, before that, I didn't even know who Johnny Cash was. Wow. Yeah. So, what about you, know, Anthony? What do you think is the greatest comeback? Do you have a pick? I, so I, I want to differentiate a little between the greatest comeback mm-hmm. <laughs> to everyone and my personal greatest comeback. Right. Um, and I'm going to keep this personal. I think my personal greatest comeback is Bruce Dickinson returning to Iron Maiden. Mm-hmm. So in, I think it was 92, he basically said, I'm done. I want to go off and do my solo thing. I think Iron Maiden is uh, diminishing returns right now. Our records are not as good as they used to be. I'm out. Iron Maiden then brought in Blaze Bailey from Wolf Spain as their new vocalist. And I love the two albums that Blaze did with them, but they were a a commercial failure. They were a critical failure. Mm. They were playing smaller and smaller venues. Um, Blaze had some issues live with uh, his voice, particularly on the first tour they did. And they were just, they, they were floundering. That's the only way of putting it. And no matter how much I love those albums, you can't, deny that Iron Maiden were nowhere near the force they used to be. And so in 1999, Bruce Dickinson and one of their former guitarists, Adrian Smith, who had joined Bruce's solo band, uh, got together with the guys from Iron Maiden and announced a comeback, a comeback tour. So Bruce and Adrian joined the other four guys. They they moved to the, 
a six-man lineup and have just been on the up and up ever since. I mean, they were back playing arenas and stadiums at that point. They bring out a new album, Brave New World, in 2000, which I think is, in my opinion, one of the strongest albums they've ever done. Mm. And just the the upswing in energy around that band yeah. was amazing. And while Iron Maiden as an entity never really went anywhere, that record was very much a comeback record because of the return of the singer, the return of one of their key songwriters in the in the guitarist, Adrian Smith. Yeah. And it's just, it's a phenomenal record. And the recordings from that tour are amazing as well. You can, you can hear the energy and the joy of them all performing together again. This isn't really, I mean, this is of course not the same kind of music at all, but in a similar situation, um, Fleetwood Mac had a really great comeback. Um, so, you know, basically when Buckingham and Nick's joined, they, they really had a huge surge of popularity from like 75 to 87. I mean, they just yeah. were on fire, everything they did. Um, and then Buckingham and Nick's left in 1987 and, and, you know, they got some new members stuff, but things just weren't as on fire for them. They, they had, um, you know, they had some stuff out, but it just didn't, didn't really have an impact really. But, um, in 1997, they, they all regrouped as that, that amazing five piece, you know, yeah, on fire entity. And they recorded the dance, which was, um, it went on to sell like 5 million copies and it's just like, they kind of recaptured that magic. And I don't know if you've ever seen the the video for that show, it's so awesome, especially they bring out that USC marching band and they do Tusk and Don't Stop. And it's like, oh, it's like mind blowing. That's such a, it's like, yeah, they they are magic when they are those five. Yeah. And, and it's interesting how, you know, for some bands that can be a comeback. It's not the yeah. band themselves never went anywhere, but they reunite with a classic lineup and it gives yeah. them a, a new lease of life. It re-energizes the fan base who are excited to see them again. Oh, yeah. I mean, I know I went bonkers when I saw them all together again, you know? Yeah. And I've seen some footage of the concert, uh, of the concerts from the late 80s where Buckingham had left, but Stevie was still around. Oh, okay. And you you watch them perform the, cha- uh, the chain and it's it's definitely lacking something. I mean, yeah. I can see exactly why, because that lineup always had this little bit of tension around them. Totally. And, and it really just drives them and makes them such a spectacular performing band. Yeah, it's like um, a real chemistry, you know, and it just can't be captured with other people. So Yeah, exactly. All right, so let's talk about, in more general terms, some other comebacks that we have enjoyed. And I feel like, Steph, I put you on the spot first. Is there another one you would like to to kick us off with here? Now we're going to sure talk more broadly. Yeah. I'd like to talk about Heart, which I'm sure Alan would like to talk about Heart too if he were here, but they were huge in the 70s. They were just massive. They had um, so many hits, and but by, I guess, late 70s, early 80s, they were really not doing as well. They're, they had two albums on Epic for, they had Private Audition and Passion Works, and they weren't, they weren't like massive hits or anything. They did, they weren't doing so great, but um 
Anne had a, some solo success with Mike Reno with Loverboy. They did a song for the album Footloose with, um, uh, the song was called Almost Paradise. And that was huge. But uh, as a band, they were sort of were going nowhere fast. So uh, Capital signed them in 85 and they had a little bit of a glam rock makeover and they put out their self-titled album called Heart in... 1985, and it became their first number one album. Um, I think it was the week of December 21st in 1985. It was like number one on the Billboard charts. So it was a massive, massive comeback. I mean, they had five five songs in the top 40, I believe, from that. Uh, there was um, These Dreams, which is also a song that Anne, I'm sorry, Nancy sung, written by Bernie Taupin. The lyrics were written by Bernie. And she really had begged to have that put on the album. That was a, a huge hit. That was the third single, but massive song for them. Um, what About Love, Never, If Looks Could Kill. And it was just, it was just insane. So they topped it with the next al- album, uh, Bad Animals. And the single alone, which was a massive worldwide hit. Mm-hmm. They also had a couple other songs from that, Who Will You Run To and There's the Girl. But I think, I mean, alone is just it it was it was just massive worldwide. And I think Alone was the first song I really knew by heart. Which oh yeah. Is hilarious because it's a cover anyway. <laughs> but the fact it was such a huge hit, you know, yeah, speaks massive. for the power behind that particular version of it. Yeah, they really, they really, uh, I, th- I think it was, you know, th- they kind of went out of vogue for a while, but then they came back, like I said, with the, the little bit of the glam rock kind of makeover, which was that style at the time, the big hair and whatever. I mean, I don't know if they necessarily wanted to do all that. I know the record company had a lot of input into that, but it's it, it, sure, it sure paid off. Yeah, it definitely feels of the time with the styles. Yes, yes. All right, Rob, who have you got for us next? So I have, uh, I'm going to go back in time a little bit to 1957. So Little Richard is at the top of his fame. He's he's huge. He's on a world tour and he sees a, um, like a meteorite crashing to the earth, right? And he thinks it's a sign from God that he's wasting his musical talent. So he cuts, he cuts the tour short. And goes back to um, his hometown and enrolls in uh, Bible school to be a preacher and quits making rock and roll. And he starts making a series of, of, um, of gospel records and he's preaching, like full on preaching, right? And he does that for, you know, almost nearly, I, th- I think, a little over a decade. And then he just kind of realizes that I'm not making any money. So then he has a huge comeback special in 69. He plays a festival and it starts this huge comeback for him. Right. And suddenly, you know, the timing's right, too, because he's kind of piggybacking off the Elvis success as well. Right. And Jerry Lee Lewis has had a modern, a little modest kind of comeback as well at this time. But his career is suddenly back because people are starting to look at his records. His live shows are just phenomenal. A lot of the issues that people had with Little Richard in the 1950s, by the time we get to the radical late 60s, early 70s, nobody really cares. He's actually playing a festival with Janis Joplin, and she blows everybody away. And he tells his manager, go to the hotel and get my mirror suit, my mirror ball suit, because he's got a 
a suit jacket that's like a mirror ball. And he puts that on. Then all of a sudden, he's little Richard again. By this time, you know, he, not only has he come back from, you know, basically being a preacher and making gospel records, but he's come back from like addiction and, you know, fighting lots of just really negative sort of racist media press at the time. Plus, he's wrestling with his sexuality and a perception of him in the media and things. And it's a much better environment for him to come back at. And I think he's a little more grounded. Now, later, he'd go back to being a pre... He'd do this again. Yeah, he did. But... Um, we saw that documentary last night, and it was oh. unbelievable. Go see that if you haven't seen the documentary. The I Am Everything, the Little Richard documentary? Yeah, it's, it, it was really wild, Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know a lot of the stuff, like what you just said with like the comeback. I had no idea he went to, to preach and did all that and just dropped out of music for so long. You know, and it's, it's, it's unlike Elvis, you know, who's kind of was, I think, almost a self-imposed exile. Yeah, it was more like forced out a self-imposed kind of thing. Yeah, you know, he kind of just chose to walk away from it. And it really seemed like he wasn't going to come back. Yeah. I mean, people thought he was just like, He's done. Yeah, right? that's a good pick. That's um, a good pick. And when he when he walked away in '57, it'd be like now if Lady Gaga just suddenly stopped making records and wanted to make polka records, right? That's kind of the impact that this had 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 at the time. Yep, that's a really good pick, Anthony. You got one. Yeah, I'm going to bring us a bit more up to date and. One that you've heard me talk about before, because I went to see them on their comeback tour last year, and that's my beloved Porcupine Tree. Woohoo! And they're, they're kind of strange, because I feel like they became more popular while they were on hiatus. So mm. 2010, they finished their tour for the album The Incident. And if you read Stephen Wilson's autobiography, he talks about how at the end of that tour, some band members weren't talking to others. Uh, and there was just this huge tension between them. So it started out as a, we're going to take a few years off uh, and go off and do our own thing. And maybe everything will be better when we come back. And as time goes by in interviews, as he's being asked about Porcupine Tree, he says things like, well, I'm not really interested in that band anymore. Or I'm now 100% invested in my solo career where I can do whatever I want and I don't have to be constrained by three other members or, you know, words to that effect. And it culminates in they're dead. That band is dead. Hmm. That band is never coming back. And then <laughs> he, at one point he goes, well, maybe we will come back when you least expect it. Six months later and... You've probably heard me tell the story a few times. So this is late, I think late 2021. They wipe all the photos off of their Instagram. They wipe their website and put up PTCC. And everyone's going, huh, what's going on here? And then the next day, they drop a new single, announce the album that they've been working on in secret for 12 years. Oh, shit. And announce a tour. That's so cool. Yeah, it was awesome. You know, to be able to do that in this day and age, and because they could do everything online in this day and age, so Stephen would drop a bass or a guitar line, and then Gavin would be working on the drums, and they would just 
tossing ideas basically between Stephen and Gavin for mm-hmm. seven, eight years. And then they bring in uh, Richard Barbieri, the, the keyboardist slash soundscape engineer. I, I don't know if keyboardist is a, is a good description for him. That doesn't do him justice. But, you know, they're just pinging files back and forth online, working on this album, and no one knows about it. It's so great. And it's so cool to be able to just, out of the blue, new single, new album, tour, we're back. And um, by the way, it's probably the last time. Oh, really? And that's what they've said. Yeah, well, they said that 10 years ago, or whatever, right? <laughs> exactly. So I think there's a a chance that they could do something else, but we'll see. And is this a dumb me- question? What does CC stand for on their web? Uh, Closure Continuation, which is the name of the album. Okay. Um, so yeah, for, for me personally, as someone who had been a fan of them since probably 2005, and I never got to see them the first time round because most of the time when I knew them, I was a broke student and couldn't really, I had to prioritize my concerts over the 12 years that they're away. They were one of those bands where I sat there and went, I really wish I'd seen them live. So for me, that anticipation and that sudden drop was just absolutely huge on a personal level. Yeah, and that's like a dream come true. Absolutely worth the money for the ticket, the flight, the hotel room in New York to go see them <laughs> at Radio City. Uh, just amazing and personally so gratifying. That's so cool. Love it. I love that. All right, Steph, I'm going to kick it back to you. All right. Well, this is kind of a a personal f- like favorite from when I was really young. I'm going to talk about Donny Osmond because um, he made a huge comeback in 1989, but it was, but it's a really weird story. Um, so as everyone knows, I mean, he, huge star when he was really young with his brothers. And of course, Marie joined them later as well. And then he, you know, he was really big in the seventies too, with the Donnie and Marie show and everything. But of course, kind of went out of vogue for a long while. And, uh, I mean, they never stopped playing the brothers and they've always, they've always continued to play. But in, um, in the summer of 89, he made a huge comeback with a song called soldier of love, but it was very weird of how it happened. Um, he had a deal with Virgin UK and it was released over there as a single and it flopped, did not do well. Uh, he was also kind of ridiculed in the British press, which didn't help matters. Um, but a fan sent a white label cassette of the song Soldier of Love to in a fan in, manor, in America. That fan sent the song on cassette to the, the PD, the program director at WPLJ in New York City, which was a huge rock, influential rock station. And she got this cassette, didn't have a, you know, she loved the song that she heard on it. She called the phone number on the, on the cassette and it was the fan. And the fan said that it was the Donny Osmond song. So she started playing it on the air as guest, the mystery artist. And it went banana. Like they were playing it nonstop. Listeners were trying to guess what the, who the artist was, um, a lot of people thought it was George Michael. Some people thought it was Boy George. Anyway, the song stayed in rotation, and they finally revealed that it was Donny Osmond. Uh, the, he basically had like a bidding war to sign him, and Capital won. And then they released that song, and it became a huge, huge hit. It went to like number two in this country. 
I, I just think that's like the coolest <laughs> way to have a comeback. You know, he basically had to whitewash his image literally and start over again. And just people had to just hear his voice and his song. That's really cool. Um, you know, and the fact that he was able to do that and almost rehabilitate his image. And it was and like kind of by chance, you know, I mean, it was just this fan sent a tape and things rolled on from there. And this PD had this great idea, you know? Yeah. So that's, that's, that's my thing. What do you got, Rob? What's your next? Well, I'm going to pivot off yours a little bit and okay. actually talk about Boy George for a second. Because, um, you know, Culture Club were, were kind of waning. Um, they were on the A team. They put out a record um, after, you know, pretty much after Move Away came out. They pretty much didn't have any chart chart hits. Mm -hmm. They had all kinds of stuff going on with the band, and it just they just kind of fell apart, right? And so he puts out a cover of Bread's "Everything I Own" in '87, I believe, and that gets him some chart success. And that album does really well that it's off of. But again, he's coming off of this, this pretty severe heroin addiction and some pretty nasty stuff in the tabloids and things. And he's kind of got a comeback going. And then he just kind of blows it. He just kind of fizzles out and doesn't go anywhere. Mm -hmm. So then again, in 1992, uh, he records a song for the Crying Game soundtrack. And that does like incredibly well. I don't think I, I think it was top five. I don't think it was a top three, but I think it's a top five record. And he starts touring again. He starts making records, but then he also starts this side hustle where he's DJing. And so his DJ career starts to take off. He's making these kind of like weird kind of house house records. He made an entire album about the Hare Krishna. Hmm. So he's getting out there to these new audiences, and he's kind of got this. Um, it's not a it's not a a comeback in the sense uh, that it's big like Tina or some of these right. other folks, but it's kind of a career reset, right? Where he kind of has like has gone literally from like selling all of his houses and his artwork to like having hit records again, mm -hmm. um, and now he just kind of is perpetually on this retro tour wagon. You know, a lot of these guys are in, um, but it's interesting sort of to see um, the sort the whole fall from grace come back because that's what the the british press loves to do that they love this whole fall from grace thing and then they love the comeback and they love the fall from grace again and then they love the comeback i think again. Um, um, america loves that too. i mean i think everybody kind of loves that but the yeah. british yeah the british press is pretty pretty brutal right anthony <laughs> yeah very very much so very brutal all right yeah. i would like to talk about one that i know alan would be talking about if he were here and that's david bowie yes so 2003, Bowie released, I think it was Heathen. No, Reality, sorry, Reality. And then he goes quiet basically for 10 years. He does a few acting jobs. He, I think he had a little bit of a health scare in there as well. And it's just, he doesn't really tour. He doesn't do any music. I think his, his album Toy leaked. Uh, at some point during that, but that wasn't a conscious effort to go ahead and do something. And then in January 2013, his website announces out of nowhere a new album the next day, <laughs> scheduled to be released two months later in March. And they 
drop a music video for Where Are We Now? And it's great. It's a little bit different. You know, it's uh, it's not quite where uh, reality left off, but it was it was enjoyable. And of course, that would start his effectively his final career renaissance. He was someone who was always uh, reinventing himself. And it was just the middle of next year, which was when he was diagnosed with cancer. And when he goes on to secretly record Black Star, which he then releases just before he dies. So while he never tours the next day, and while he obviously never tours Black Star, he comes back with these two incredibly creative albums. And the, the latter was effectively his gift to his fans, which is candidly a really fucking cool thing to do. Yeah. Um, and it's it's almost like, you know, he just has this final little burst of creativity. Uh, and he's he... also got the play at the same time, Lazarus. Right. Which is also a huge comeback. So he's got basically an album, another album, and a play, and he's doing this all at once. And he is, you know, doing photo shoots for Black Star. And he's deathly ill. And like, I think two people know about it, maybe three, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, when the next day came out, it was literally like, wait a minute, what is this? Right? I mean, we're like, people in radio didn't even know it was coming. It was just yeah. kind of like, oh, look, yeah. there's a new David Bowie single. It's like, what the hell is this? Right? <laughs> I mean, it's, um, it really is clever how that whole thing came about. And that whole record, when you listen to it, it still sounds fresh, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's sort of how far ahead of the, the curve he is. Even, even his drum and bass record still sounds great. Like those records that he made in the latter part of the um, 2000s I, are really getting sort of culturally reexamined, you know? Um, but he sort of is on this wave of a comeback where he doesn't have a misstep at all. And right. the amount of planning that he goes that goes into this as well is really interesting, right? Because he does the prestige, he does records, he does, you know, a couple other things as well to where he's all, you know, he plays David Bow or he plays Andy Warhol in Basquiat, right? He always stays in the cultural zeitgeist, but we just in order sort of never think we're going to get a new record from him. And then all of a sudden there is one and it's, it's really extraordinary. Yeah, it is. So I'm going to go back to, um, going back to the seventies, um, it's, I feel like Aerosmith were sort of on the same path as Hart, just but with more drugs <laughs> involved. <laughs> um, so I, I think they also have one of the most massive comebacks in history also. So, and, you know, everyone knows they were so popular in the 70s, um, but they were really fueled by drugs and there was a lot of band infighting. So by the late 70s and early 80s, they were not really having their hits anymore. Um, and they just were were in a very low period. And Run DMC decided to do a cover of Walk This Way in 1986 and put them in that video. They did a, like a you know collaboration, basically. And uh, not only did that massively break you know, break them open to a new fan base, but that also kind of created that whole rap rock genre that like subgenre of music that a lot of bands went on to have a lot of success with. But, um, the, in the year after that happened, all five band members got clean 
And they started working on um, some collaborations with like songwriters like Desmond Child and Jim Valance. And they wrote the album Permanent Vacation, which came out in 1987. And it was a huge, huge hit. Again, so many singles that you know from this album. Dude Looks Like a Lady, Angel, Ragdoll, Hangman Jury. It sold 5 million copies. It was a fucking smash. And MTV was like all over their videos also. I don't know if you I mean, if you remember just turning on MTV and you only saw basically Aerosmith, you know? Um, and then in 1989, just two years later, they put out Pump, which was all sold even more copies, sold like 7 million. Um, that was Love in an Elevator, Janie's Got a Gun, The Other Side, What It Takes. I mean, they just were a hit-making machine and they really, it was, it was, it was them getting clean, get going back to the, you know, just the, the music and, uh, you know, also having some, some songwriting input from some other people too, I think really helped them. And, and that really, that Renaissance lasted well into the nineties. Oh yeah. They just, I mean, I, going, yeah. I remember when I don't want to miss a thing came out Oh and, yeah, you know, then we had a couple of music TV stations in the UK that were the kind of ones where you could call in and punch in a number and it would queue up yes. the video you wanted to see. Like a video jukebox, yep. Yeah, and I mean, it was exorbitantly expensive and I got into a huge amount of trouble as a kid for <laughs> calling too many times and making requests. But I remember they had a ton of Aerosmith songs on those in pretty heavy rotation. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. You know, we're talking like 97, 98 kind of time frame. Yeah. So that career renaissance lasted as well. Definitely, definitely. So that's a... I always, like I said, I always think about that in, in kind of conjunction with heart because it was that, you know, glamish time, that glam metally time, mm -hmm. and MTV just ate that up. And I didn't even realize they had seventies output until you know ten years ago when I discovered them on Spotify. To really? me, they were there. 80s and 90s periods. Wow. See, that's, yeah, I love it. So you, you learn, you you dug into their catalog. I love it. I was going to talk about Dusty Springfield, who has made one of the greatest records of the 20th century called Dusty in Memphis. Mm -hmm. So she records, what have I done to deserve this with the Pet Shop Boys, right? But what people don't really realize is that they were trying to find her and they couldn't find her anywhere. And they end up finding out that she lives in one of those weak to week rent hotels in Los Angeles, right? She has like $400 to her Dear, name. I didn't know that. Yeah, she had like $400 to her name. Um, she does not own her own, like her catalog rights and all of that is just a mess, right? So she puts out, what have I done to deserve this? And, you know, much like Tina Turner, she's got this whole new group of people that are paying attention to her. Then she puts out a record after that. Uh, she's got a song from the movie Scandal, I think, um, that came out. But Roland Gift was in that. And um, she's got a couple other hit records. And that kind of gets her back in. And she is on this huge career resurgence and gets uh, into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. She gets elected to the Rock and Roll <laughs> Hall of Fame. And then uh, she dies the day that she is inducted. Oh, my God. Oh, which is horrible, wow. right? But she had this like really great sort of like twilight years run to where she's got, you know, 
money and some fame back, which is, it's, you know, it's such a tragic rock and roll story too. Wow. Yeah. You mean you mentioned Tina Turner in in that, and that is uh, that was one Alan was was wanting yeah. to mention also, and of course uh, he might be right. One of the greatest comebacks of all time, also. I mean, uh, of course she had many hits in the '60s with with Ike, but she she really fell on hard times for for a long while. Um, even though she she did continue to tour, I mean, she didn't really have a significant hit, so. In 83, 1983, uh, she, she nabbed a deal with Capitol. She had a cover of Let's Stay Together that did pretty well. But the real breakthrough for her came, came the next year when she um, recorded Private Dancer. It was just, I think it, they recorded in like two months. And boom, What's Love Got to Do With It came out. And wow, it, just skyrocketed her back into the the mainstream. She yeah. was again also all over MTV. Um, she had many hits on that album too. Um, Better be good to me. Private dancer. I can't stand the rain. Show some respect. And you know she just really reignited her career. And she she already had the respect of of people, but she this just brought her into a whole other generation. Well, the thing is, too, she that, that she had a tour after that that was just yeah. insane. That insane. tour, like, she also has a great documentary out that you should yeah. stream. But like, she she has the double whammy, right? She puts yeah. out an amazing friggin' record, right? Yeah. And then, unlike a lot of these people that do a comeback, she backs it up with like a massive world tour, massive She's arena on tour. tour yeah. I think for like a year. Almost, uh, maybe right? longer, wow. actually. And I mean, she's out there every friggin' night. And um, on top of the fact that, and, and Steph, correct me if, I, if I'm wrong here, but on top of having this amazing record, and on top of having this incredible tour and being on MTV, which is huge uh, for getting African American music on MTV mm-hmm. and also older performers oh, on yeah. MTV, right? Um, she was able at that point to really tell her story. Yes. Yes. And the whole story with her and Ike and it's a it's a it's stuff that a lot of people didn't know. But when Tina Turner spoke out and had her success and everything that happened to her, that really, really, really inspired an entire generation of other musicians. Yeah. Down and the road. it was really vindication for her at that point. Yeah. It was like uh this I, this is what I went through, and uh, and fuck you, motherfuckers. I'm still here, and I'm better than ever, and I'm doing it myself. I think what makes that so poignant was Ike had gone out of his way to destroy her career yes. on on you know her way out of that marriage. Yes. So he did. the fact that she came back and said basically fuck you, it was just it's huge and really really inspiring. Yeah. 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 And she's, uh, I have to, ju- just a little name, not name drop, we're already talking about her, but I met her because we worked, uh, I think it was the GoldenEye soundtrack. Is that right, Rob? Do you yes. Think? Yes. Anthony. Yes. Yeah. So um, I met her, this is a little funny story. I met her and um, she came up to our, our company and she went and met every single employee and was the nicest, sweetest, most humble person ever. Took a picture with every single one of us and when I sent that picture to my mom and my dad, they both separate because they were divor- they're divorced, and they both separately called me, and they were like, "Oh, 
I see, like they finally understood my career in the music industry. It was like, we're like approving of it after seeing my picture with Tina Turner. <laughs> and now, now you mentioned the GoldenEye soundtrack, Steph. Yeah. I, for me, that's still the best modern Bond theme. Isn't it you know, so good? Yeah. It's, I mean, it's got all the hallmarks of, <laughs> you know, one of the Shirley Bassey ones. I mean, she's got the voice to go toe to toe with that. Yes. And it's got that kind of very kind of classic Bond vibe, but with a 90s twist to it that just yes. works really well. Yeah. She's the shit. We love her. <laughs> <laughs> one of mine, and this is one of the ones where I think it was a comeback and they should have finished there. Mid-90s, you know, well, early 90s, Phil Collins leaves Genesis. They do one album without him with a guy called Ray Wilson on vocals, and it kind of fizzles out. They they don't quite have the same allure without Phil or without Peter singing. And everyone assumes they're over. Right? Phil's quite happy doing his solo career. Tony Banks is off writing classical music, and Mike Rutherford is doing Mike and the Mechanics. Why would Genesis ever get back together? And 2007, they announce a one-off reunion tour. And I was a pretty big Genesis fan at this point in time. I was transitioning from my metal phase into more of a prog phase. <laughs> and I had one of my friends had lent me a couple of Genesis albums, and I had just fallen in love. And I called my mom who's at work and you know this is really before Ticketmaster was big so most people still called a hotline to buy tickets yeah and I called my mom uh she was working I was like mom Genesis tickets go on sale do you want to go with me and you know she's she's a child of the 70s so she was like yes I would love to so she gets us tickets uh we go and see them at Twickenham Stadium in London and they were fucking amazing oh my god I mean they did the full you know, they had Chester Thompson on, on drums and Daryl Sturmer on, on guitar as, you know, their touring musicians. And you get the full two drummer thing at times when Phil decides to also jump behind the kit and you get the drum jewels. And it, it, it was just such a good show. And what I will say is they should have stopped there. <laughs> I mean, we I remember on a very, very early show, and this might have even be, been before you joined, Steph, we asked the question, how old is too old? And I think I held up Genesis, uh, their most recent reunion tour, as an example of a band who really should have called it a day. And I think we came to the conclusion of age is not the factor. You know, in, in music, old is very much a... It can, <laughs> you can have artists in their eighties who still feel young. Yeah, right? they've yeah. still got it. Um, whereas, seeing the video footage from that tour with Phil sitting, not able to drum, oh, I'm so not sad. having rehearsed, so oh. he's off key. It it was just so sad to watch. Yeah. So that two thousand seven tour, amazing, and they should have called. And they should all the quits. Yeah. No, I did miss that show. I wasn't with you guys then, but oh yeah. I have two other ladies to talk about that, you know, briefly, I'm not going to go into detail too much, but um, one is Cher, who actually had two come comebacks. Um, she, she had a huge hit with Dark Lady in 1974. That was like the last of her kind of big hits in the 60s and 70s. And, um, and then 
1989, she had the uh, sort of, it was like a one-off kind of song come back with If I Could Turn Back Time. And I think that's kind of more remembered from what she was wearing in the video than the song itself, or, or what she wasn't wearing in the video. Um, <laughs> but uh, then in 98, uh, she had a massive, massive hit with Believe. Sold mm-hmm. 11 million copies and number one and just smash hit. So that was pretty cool for share. And some would say with Believe, she brought auto-tuning really mainstream, like Oof. overly modulated auto-tuning. Yeah. And I mean, that song's yeah. iconic to this day. I did, while we're talking about her stuff, and I, yeah. before I, in the early 90s, she also had a cover of the, the Shoop song. Oh. Was, yeah, that was great. That cover was great great i remember she uh she performed it at the opening of euro disney which was televised (laughs) across i don't know if it made it to tv here but it was televised across europe and i remember seeing her i was like you know five years old thinking wow she's amazing (laughs) yeah i'm not sure if i love that auto-tune thing but you're right that's a good point for that um the other person is (laughs) mariah carey who uh by the time she signed to my label, which was Virgin, I was working at Virgin at the time. She had um, the the unfortunate flop with Glitter, both oh, movie God, and soundtrack, that. and that was in two thousand and one. Um, that was a very big mess. And uh, then, just short four years later, she really, really proved everybody wrong and the emancipation of Mimi came out and she just, she had her best selling album in, in a decade and won three Grammys and was just, you know, basically vindicated. You know, I, I don't like her. I think she's got an amazing voice. I don't personally like her, but, uh, you know, kudos to her for, for that. And I think that takes a lot to come back from a critically panned album. And she was also having, you know, of course she was having, depression and a breakdown and uh, just a lot of problems. And looking back on it, I have more, I think I've said this before, but I have more sympathy than I did at that point because it was uh, a lot of BS to have to go through at the label and with her and her her manager and all that crap. But yeah, she really, she really turned it around and, and, you know, you got to give props to that. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, Rob, what have you got for us? So I'm going to do two real quick ones. Um, Duran Duran, pretty much after Notorious, is kind of non-existent on any charts. They're not touring. They've got no traction in America at all. And then Ordinary World comes out. And that sort of changes the game because all of a sudden they're back in the top 10 of the commercial charts and they're sort of they're sort of popular again, right? Amazing, um, amazing song. Because they were kind of written off until that point. They were kind of written off yeah. as like okay, them being in the eighties. And I think people really began to appreciate more the musicianship and the songwriting with that album. Um, but they had say they had some pretty lean years. Um, yeah, I feel like I'm the only person on the planet who likes Electric Barbarella. So <laughs> I don't, I don't that. dislike it. It's just not awesome. You know, it's, I I think, I think it was, if they didn't rush it, it might've been better. But I think the other thing that's interesting too, is, you know, they got a huge pop by being on the soundtrack to a film called Donnie Darko. And that sort of got Mm -hmm. them back into the public 
consciousness a little bit too. Um, the other one I want to talk about is Tears for Fears, who, you know, they have the run with the first two albums and then um, they're kind of in a lull. And then Sowing the Seeds of Love comes out in 89. And it's probably one of the biggest records of the year. And they're still making a couple records between 1989 and, and the present. But after 1989, they don't really have anything that makes you say, oh, my God, there's a new Tears for Fears record out. Or nobody's jumping up and down about it. But then they put out the tipping point in 2022, and all the critics love it. Um, it has become, a, a, you know, it's it's tabbed as an early Grammy contender. It's got, like, all of the music press, you know, touch marks of, like, album of the year and stuff. And they sort of got their career back a little bit. They kind of settled down, re reevaluated where they were and, and kind of reset what they wanted their careers to be. And they put out the tipping point, which is much less of a pop record, but much more of a concept record. And um, it really sort of suited them a little better. And Stephen Wilson, who did the Atmos mastering for the tipping point is on record as saying he thinks that's their finest record. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and I, am I right in thinking, Rob, I think Kurt left in the nineties. Uh, Roland did a couple of albums yeah, by himself. Names yeah. that were effectively and, solo albums. And he, and he has a solo album uh, that never got released um, that I have the cassette for, and then it just never came out. And they weren't, yeah. they weren't speaking much like, you know, OMD for a while. They weren't even speaking for a while. And then they sort of came back together and kind of redid it. And I think it took them kind of a couple albums to sort of reevaluate their working relationship and how they did everything too. I actually really like one of the albums that was just Roland, Raul and the Kings of Spain. But, yeah, that's a great record. But, you know, certainly yeah. it didn't hit the uh, the public um, consciousness in the same way as The Tipping Point has. But it's it's by, by no means a bad record. But, you know, if mm -hmm. you're looking for commercial success and, you know, critical recognition. Right. Um, it it didn't. It's and not that's, that. <laughs> that is one of those records that people will look at in 10 or 15 years again and kind of look look back at it, I think, you know, about five or six more years in a different way. Yeah. All right. I, I wanted to give a shout out uh, to another band who were in a very similar situation to Iron Maiden, which was Judas Priest. So early 90s, Rob Halford left. He wanted to go off and do things more like Pantera, right? He wasn't feeling the classic... Judas Priest, the classic heavy metal sound. Uh, so he goes off and he forms a band called Fight, kind of does okay. Then he decides he wants to hang out with Trent Reznor, forms another band called Two that hit the whole industrial rock thing um, before finally going off and forming Halford, which sound like classic Judas Priest. In the meantime, Judas Priest finds a singer, an American gentleman by the name of Tim Owens, who was in a Judas Priest cover band. <laughs> And bring him in as the lead singer. And yes, he was the inspiration for that movie, Rockstar, starring um, Wahlberg. Oh, okay. Yeah. And they do two albums with him. And I actually think they're pretty solid albums. The man has pipes. Uh, but, you know, Rob Halford is something special. They don't call him the metal god for no reason. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so Iron Maiden reform. They bring Bruce back. They get that uplift in success. Judas Priest with, with Tim... Owens was falling the same, following the same decline, playing smaller and smaller venues. And so management kind of 
gets in there her ear and says, wouldn't it be nice if Rob came back? And in the meantime, Rob is also saying, well, I feel like it will probably happen at some point. I'm open to it. So big fanfare. They announce Ripper out. Tim's nickname was Ripper because he did a phenomenal job performing the Judas Priest song, The Ripper. Okay. Uh, Ripper out, Halford in, new album, tour, boom. Poor success. Ripper, by the way. I know. Aww. And he's he's been a bit of a journeyman ever since. He is frequently featured in replacing people in other bands <laughs> oh god <the> poor guy <laughs> yeah <laughs> he, he had a stint in iced earth um who i a terrible band led by a terrible person <laughs> i mean iced earth's the leader behind that band was in the uh the january riots um in 20 oh my god so yeah no he's he's been cooperating cooperating with the fbi it's wild whoa um but Ripper also joined uh, Dio Disciples, which is Ronnie James Dio's band after he died, decided to keep his legacy going by performing his songs. So he oh. he joined Dio as the replacement for Dio, basically. God. <laughs> so, yeah, he's been a bit of a journeyman. But, um, but yeah, Judas Priest's comeback was something special and, you know, it ultimately led to them getting into the rock hall. So. Well, you're right about his voice. I mean, I'm not a massive fan of theirs, but there's, I mean, gosh, you can't deny it. And there is a very special sound that he has. His, yeah, his his mastery of the vocal fry is just amazing. Yeah. yeah. You know, the other metal band I wanted to mention before we wrap it up, I'm going to give you a twofer here, <laughs> is Black Sabbath. And everyone's going to think he's talking about the Aussie era. No. Hmm. They reunited with Ozzy so many times, and most of them did nothing for me because there was no new material. I'm specifically talking to the mid-2000s when they announced that they were going to reunite with Ronnie James Dio. Okay. And rather than performing under the name Black Sabbath, they performed under the name Heaven and Hell, which was the title of their first album they did with Ronnie. And... Part of the reason for that was they were getting frustrated with Ozzy not wanting to record any new material. So they said, all right, let's celebrate the Dio era. Ronnie, do you want to do something? Now, Ozzy and Sharon had some ownership of the Black Sabbath name, which is why they didn't perform as Black Sabbath. But man, Hmm. it's one of my big regrets. I did not go and see them before Ronnie died. It's one of my big regrets that uh, I even had a ticket to go and see them and for one reason or another i couldn't go but those performances the the recordings of them were phenomenal he still had it right up until the day he died i mean there there are interviews with the band where apparently he would be doubled over in pain before the show yet still walk out perform an absolute blinder of a show no one in the audience knew he was sick walk off stage and be doubled over oh wow um and that last album they did, The Devil You Know, was so good. And for me, that is when Black Sabbath should have called it quits. Mm-hmm. That that was, to me, one of the highlights of their career. So good. Wow, that's intense. And I think I'm done. Rob, I had a question. Did you want to say anything more about the Elvis comeback? Or do we sort of, I mean, we said we might talk about it more, but I don't know. I, I think we I think we hit on it. Yeah. Um, Okay, I just wanted to double check. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, he's kind of the template for comebacks in the late 20th century, right? Um, He just sort of 
does everything right in what you want to do, right? Yeah. Um, and I just, I, I, you know what I guess I want to say about that? When I said, if I can dream, what, the best, one of the best covers that you, you'd ever, ever hear from anybody. It's so friggin' inspirational and moving. And there's a few versions floating around out there from that comeback special. But, um, you know, I don't think uh, Colonel Tom did not want that song to be um, on there. You know, it was, they, they, he wanted more of like a Christmassy kind of happy vibe and whatever. And uh, Elvis was just like, no, this is going to be on there. And when they did that, the whole, the band, like everybody was sort of stunned and because all the passion and magic of Elvis shine through so much on that song. It's I, I, if you haven't seen it or heard it, please go listen to if I can dream. And that's all I'll say. <laughs> you mentioned earlier Steph about the comeback from Elvis having your favorite Elvis song. And you actually mentioned my favorite Elvis song in the same breath, uh-huh. which is suspicious minds. Mm. What a, just, what a song. And the way so, he does it, yeah, it's just... I mean, the man was a genius. Yeah. yeah, And I really do like his later stuff so much. I, you know, I don't know. It was just a different era, different different time, different song choices and stuff. Yeah. But I, th- I love him. I also, too, kind of want to talk about, you know, both um, John Lennon and George Harrison with the Beatles had comebacks in their own way, in their own times. Lennon, sadly, was mostly posthumous, um, but both had comebacks as well. Um, And Harrison just was huge because he had the the MTV hits, right? And then he had the Traveling Wilburys as well. And in a way, Um, Roy Orbison sort of too, right? And I was going to mention Roy Orbison too because that Handle Me With Care record was a huge comeback for him as well. Um, and you kind of see in the 80s, these like older guys kind of all starting to come through the mill again. You get a, there's like Gene Pitney makes a record with Mark Almond. Um, you've got Dwayne Eddy making a record with uh, The Art of Noise. And these guys, because of those hit records, are kind of getting a little bit of a career bump. Yeah. Um, and playing out live more and people are discovering their records too. Um, we also had one kind of a little bit last year. Uh, Tom Jones put out a record last year. And he toured, and Tom Jones hadn't toured in forever, and critics hadn't loved and lauded a Tom Jones record in forever. But mm-hmm. the last last record he did, a lot of people really loved too. So that's kind of a mini mini comeback. And they they probably hadn't really lauded him since his last comeback in the '90s with Reload. Right? Yeah, that that in itself was a comeback. Yeah, um, yeah, he's kind of like Cher with two comebacks in a way. <laughs> yeah, and, and Reload. I mean, he updated his sound. You know, it sounds very kind of late '90s. A lot of kind of dance elements and rock elements. A lot of collabs with, yeah. um, you know, the Cardigans, for example, and and a few others. It, it, it was a really cool album. Yeah, in the 2000s, you've got Leonard Cohen basically living on a private mountain in California, <laughs> not making any records at all, and then suddenly somebody knocks on his door and says, "Hey, why don't you tour and?" put out a record and all of a sudden, you know, he's huge again. And the yeah. latter half of his career output is pretty incredible. Um, mm-hmm. Also Tammy Wynette, who pretty much had been in obscurity for 20 to 30 years outside of like the s- small country tours and state fairs and things, but is on the KLF record justified and ancient. And then suddenly her record um, 
her classic records are kind of getting revived and she's kind of back in the public. And then she sadly um, gets cancer and, you know, dies relatively young, but she was starting to get her career back. Uh, we've seen a bit of a renaissance with Tanya Tucker in the last couple of years too. Um, and uh, Loretta White or Loretta Lynn with uh, Jack White making the Portland, Oregon record too. That, that's another kind of interesting comeback. All right. So these are some of our favorites. Listeners, we would love to know some of yours. Comment on our Facebook and our Instagram uh, posts on this about your favorite comebacks. We will be back in just a minute after the break. We're going to advertise another Earth Station One Network uh, show, and then we'll be back with Picks of the Week. I love that Star Trek does what adventure programs do. It's fun characters going on adventures, wearing colorful outfits, but it tries to be more than that. It tries to say something more about humanity and tries to encourage us to be better people. I love that it gives a really positive and really hopeful view of the future. I like that you never know what you get with Trek, from Captain Pike to Picard to Captain Proton. I like the Ferengi. <laughs> Earth Station Trek, a show where we talk about Star Trek, from the early days on NBC to the future on Paramount Plus and everywhere in between. And we're back. And as promised, picks of the week. Stephanie, what have you got? I've got a few. Um, my first is Mike Viola. Woohoo! New album called Paul McCarthy. Not Paul McCartney, Paul McCarthy. Uh, just released on April 14th. I, we just went to see him at Mercury Lounge two nights ago. It was so fantastic. If you if you can, if he's coming to your town, go see him. Um, if you're not familiar with Mike, he was, he's originally from a band called the Candy Butchers, but he's just amazing, like power pop kind of alternative melodic rock kind of great harmonies. I, I can't say enough. I mean, he is one of my favorite singer songwriters of all time. Um, also I had the absolute thrill of seeing one of my great old friends, Mark Geary, come back and play in New York. He's from Ireland um, I've known him since like hanging out at the Shanae like a million years ago playing there. Um, Mark plays mostly acoustic when he plays live. Um, he's on album. He has some songs with like full instrumentation, but um, he, he writes absolutely beautiful lyrics. Um, he is just a beautiful singer songwriter, great voice. He's hilarious. Also has a wonderful stage presence uh, he's open for so many great artists like and and played alongside of great artists like Glenn Hansard, The Swell Season, Josh Ritter, The Frames, Coldplay, Elvis Costello. Like there it's just endless. He ple- he uh he plays all over the place. I mean, he's he tours the UK a lot. He tours here sometimes, but he'll by the time this episode comes out, he's going to be in Italy. So look on his Facebook or Instagram page um, Mark Geary, M-A-R-K, and it's G-E-A-R-Y. And that leads me to his, my last pick, which is his brother, Carl Geary, um, who is an author and has a brand new book. It's not a book about, it's not a music book, but it's a brand new book called Juno Loves Legs, which is getting absolute, like amazing reviews. Um, he did a reading at the Scratcher, this the show that we went to with Mark. So it was sort of like a book release and an album party all together. Um, and it was just fantastic reading. And um, you can find it on Amazon. It just came out. Again, it's called Juno Loves Legs. I can't really give a review because I, I didn't read it. I just bought it. <laughs> and 
Steph, before I hand over to Rob, my right in thinking it was the reason you weren't with us last week was because you were at that show. I was at that show and I actually ended up singing a song with Mark and it was so fun. So, That's amazing. I, yeah. I think we posted that to our Facebook yes, we uh, did. page. So go check it out. That's right. Stephanie's you can hear awesome. Mark Geary singing Battle of Troy and me singing Backup. <laughs> All right, Rob, what have you got for us this week? So this is going to tie in with our theme of comebacks a little bit. Um, Steph, you get to be the guinea pig. You ready? Yeah. Do you remember Andy Partridge? Yes, XTC. He has a new band. <gasps> so he has taken, he has spent the latter part of the last decade doing UFO research. And <laughs> what? he has. As yes, you do. <laughs> yes. And so he has assembled um, two session – well, Stu Rose, a really great session player, but also uh, Jen Olive, who's got her own sort of solo career going, uh, who's worked with him before. And they are uh, the three clubmen, and they have a new EP out under the same name. And uh, the single from that is called Aviatrix, but that just came out this week. Um, cool. So if you're a fan of XTC or that era of XTC kind of pop, uh, that kind of ties in with both comebacks and you were talking about pop. Um, yeah. You know, his voice is still great. So look mm -hmm. for that. Um, also, um, it's finally here. I could stop the waiting. But the new national record, uh, first two pages of Frankenstein dropped this week. Um, Phoebe Bridgers is on it. Some new up and comer is on it named Taylor Swift um, as well. Uh, she's going to, I think, I think she's going to do well. Um, and then I give, um, I give it two weeks. Yeah. Um, the record store release from Beach House is now released formally uh, as everything does on record store day. Uh, Beach House have a new EP out uh, called Become. It's incredible. So if you like that sort of like tranquil Cocteau twinsy kind of um mellow stuff they're the band for you and uh oh my god finally pg harvey's back yeah really so i'm very excited uh a child's question august is her new single an album is coming here's a new pj harvey record uh all is right in the world and uh lastly i'm going to go back to 1956 the first um long playing album to sell a million copies in the u.s and the second straight number one record uh it's called calypso by mr harry belafonte oh, yeah. um i cannot begin to even tell you um outside of the activism and the films the musical career of harry belafonte is just astonishing if you kind of do a deep dig into how many records he sold in the 50s uh, and early 60s, and just how prolific he was, it's pretty incredible. So I think we need to sort of um, take some time this week and listen to some Harry Belafonte records because they're all pretty friggin' amazing. I mean, everybody's heard Deo. Everybody's probably heard Matilda. Um, but he does some interesting covers on some of his records. And um, that album, Calypso, is probably a nice place to start because it's got uh, Deo on it. He also had a nice little comeback thanks to uh, his song being in a film called Beetlejuice. But um, <clears throat> yeah, just that's right. towering performer and um, outside the civil rights activism, uh, organizing the March on Washington and his uh, acting career and, and things, um, performed with the Muppets. Um, if you can find his, his sketch playing drums with uh, Animal from uh, the Muppets, it's amazing. Just a titanic figure and um, listen to Harry Belafonte. All right. And that leaves me. And honestly, music wise, I've just been 
back on my bullshit, mostly listening to Sparks and Church of the Cosmic Skull. So back on your bullshit. <laughs> so you know nothing huge there, but I did want to give out, uh, give a shout out to a YouTube channel I've been watching uh, called Trash Theory. And if you're not familiar, Trash Theory basically does every video is a music essay. Uh, Mostly he touches British stuff and he refers to a lot of stuff as new British canon. Um, but the one thing that actually coincidentally, since Rob mentioned them earlier, that he talks about and most recently did a video on was the KLF. And just his level of analysis, he looks at how these bands break through and all of their influences and how they craft their sound and how they market themselves. They're normally between about uh, 20 and 40 minutes. A couple of them are, are longer, but they are always really, really interesting to listen to and absolutely worthwhile. And I highly recommend that. That's a YouTube channel called Trash Theory. That sounds cool. Let me yeah. check it out. There's definitely something for everyone on there. I mean, he, you know, you've got, the KLF, you've got the Eurythmics, you've got Wet Leg. He covers the Manchester scene. He talks about Bjork in, in a video. I mean, it's he's all over the place. He's great. Very cool. All right. And that brings us to the end of the show. So, Rob, where else can our listeners find you? So you can find me on the Need Coffee podcast, uh, Weekend Justice. Uh, also writing different things here and there for places, Inc. 19. A um, couple things are coming for a couple other different places. And um, you can hear me on, on the radio, per, you know, perhaps you're at home on a Wednesday night taking care of your mountain goat and you need to listen to something. Um, you can turn on Juxtaposition on KDHX, either on the TuneIn app or through the, the stream, and you listen to Juxtaposition every Wednesday from 7 to 9 p.m. Central. Uh, people have lives and Wednesdays a night that's got a lot of stuff going on. So if you don't listen in real time, it's cool because you can time travel to our archive stream and listen to the last two weeks of shows for all of our shows um, and hear archive streams of the shows. And then I'm also hosting a show called Antics on Louder Than War Radio, which is 6 to 8 p.m. Monday, Greenwich Mean Time, or 1 to 3 Eastern or 12 to 2 Central on Mondays, and you can listen to that on Louder Than War Radio. It also is uh, archived if you go to the Louder Than War website. Um, you can click on Antics with Rob Levy and all of the shows. I believe we're about to record a number 11 this week. Uh, they're all archived, and you can listen to those. Awesome. Thank and you, And thanks Rob. to Bob for making <laughs> that happen, helping make that happen. Oh, yes. All right, Steph, where else can people find you? Well, um, you can find me on Facebook at Stephanie Seymour Music. You can find me on Instagram at there underscore r underscore birds. And you can find me on Bandcamp and uh, all the streaming platforms everywhere, like Spotify and stuff like that. All right. Thank you. And before I talk about myself, let's give a shout out to... Our absent co-host, Alan Seiler, you can find him through Cosmic, and that's K-O-Z-M-I-C, creative.com, which is where he has all of his projects, including all of his podcasts and the various books he has contributed to and is publishing. So don't forget to go and check Alan out. He is actually at Taylor Swift as we record this. Yeah. So I'm sure he's having a great time. 
And then as for myself, you can also find me on Watchers in the Fourth Dimension, a Doctor Who podcast where we are watching our way through all of Doctor Who from 1963 until now. We have been on hiatus uh, after one of our co-hosts sadly passed away earlier this year, but we are now working on new material. So that's coming soon. But in the meantime, we have over 100 episodes of Doctor Who goodness for you to check out. And uh, once you're done with that, we will hopefully be releasing new material. So stay tuned. But as always, thank you so much, dear listener, for tuning into our show. We hope you've enjoyed the ride. As I said earlier, do write into us. Let us know what you think are some of the greatest comebacks. And we also want to know what you've been listening to. So drop us a note with that too. But until then, as always, thank you again for listening and have a good one. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.